Hello and welcome to this episode of Better Off Red. My name is Pip Adam. This is episode 94. We've made 94 episodes. Whoa. Um, so this is an episode about plot. Um, it comes in our plot season um, and I get to talk to Dan Coyce, which is always very nice. Um, yeah, I like the way Dan's mind works and he's very good at explaining things. And yeah, we have a great conversation about plot and narrative and um, what makes something satisfying, all those sorts of things. Um, now, as the object um, that we sort of center the conversation around, Dan's chosen this ingenious idea and we take sort of as our central metaphor or our central kind of idea a sound mixing board. So um, what you might find um, in a production studio where you can turn up certain tracks and turn down certain tracks. Um, Dan supplied this quite interesting <laughs> and it's sometimes hilarious um, video of Steely Dan producing a song and that is on our website better-red.com. Um, yeah so we have a great conversation. Um, one of the reasons I was really keen to capture Dan at this moment in time is that um, Dan's novel, Vintage Contemporaries, is sort of at this very interesting, um, uh, what would you call it, phase of its um, life where um, he's just about to step into sort of editing it. So um, I just thought it's an interesting time to think about structure and how it works in, in the novel. So I'm very grateful that he's willing to talk about that as well. So yeah, uh, I think that's everything. Um, there's an exercise at the end if you're um, interested. It's quite a complex one. I don't know. Oh, who knows? But um, I also just want to say thanks to Copyright Licensing New Zealand who have helped fund this podcast. So yeah. Thanks for listening and have a good day. Hello, Dan. How are you? Good. Thank you for letting me join again. Uh, it's so nice to have you back. Thanks for coming back again. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you about this topic. Um, I feel like you're in a really interesting position to talk about it. Um, I wondered if we could start, like we always start, um, by me asking you to introduce yourself, um, however you want to do that. And I guess the introduction today might be slightly different from the introduction you gave last time you talked on the show, but maybe not. Uh, I'm Dan Coyce. I'm an American journalist and writer. Uh, I live in Virginia with my family. Uh, Pip knows me from our time in Wellington several years ago. Uh, when we lived there for three months as part of research for a book I wrote, a memoir called How to Be a Family. Uh, I write for Slate magazine and podcast for that magazine. And I have a novel which is which has been acquired by a publisher and will be coming out 18 to 24 months from now. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I was just, that's nearly three times what a baby human takes. That's it. correct. It's astonishing <laughs> how the the uh, the period of time it is going to take for this novel to be born. It, when in fact it's it, it's about eight ninths developed already. Yet the final yeah. month of development is going to take eighteen to twenty four months. Yeah, I can I can totally see how that can be, um, and yeah you've chosen an awesome object for us to talk i'm so excited about the object you chose it just 
like I've been thinking about it all night about how perfect it is when we're talking about kind of structure and plot and narrative and those kind of things. Do you want to introduce, introduce sorry, the, um, the object that you've chosen for us to talk about today? Yeah, so we're talking about structure and narrative, narrative structure particularly, and the object that came most easily to mind when I thought about the way that I considered structure in writing this novel was a mixing board. That is um, the soundboard that a sound engineer, uh, you know, at a live performance or in a recording studio would use to bring up different tracks while they're recording or mixing. If you envision it, it's a big console in front of, uh, you know, traditionally it's like a guy with a beard and a cigarette and he's fiddling with each of the knobs and he brings one up and a different and there's the trombones. Then he brings up another one and there's the bass. <laughs> Uh, and he has at, you know, at his fingers, every possible instrument he might need. And he is the one who then decides when we hear each instrument and at what level and with what tone and timbre. Um, and, uh, and so that's the object. It's a big, I'm sure there's probably some famous brand of mixing board that a sound engineer would say, oh yeah, you're talking about a, a Nev, a Nev mixing board. But I don't know. I'm just thinking of <laughs> the generic one that's in the studio when Steely Dan is like mixing Peg. It's such a great video as well. And um, I mean, I've got lots of thoughts about how um, this sort of, how the mixing board um, relates to structure. But I wonder what's your thinking around it especially with this with this novel that you've just finished uh i think of the mixing board as a tool that an experienced sound engineer uses to essentially craft an audio narrative out of a bunch of things that already exist right you've got mm -hmm. your 24 tracks and each one of those tracks represents an instrument or a section that's already been recorded and is and is and when you play the song, the video you're referring to is this video I sent you that I love of the two guys from Steely Dan talking about the mixing of the song Peg and just being gigantic assholes, which it seems like they are. Just like that's, <laughs> they're genius assholes. That's like their whole thing. And they're just, and they're at the knobs turning up different solos and being like, oh yeah, that sounds great. And then turning up some guitar solo that some guy did that they hated and rejected and then both <laughs> listening to it and be like yeah what like we'd use that and then turning it back down <laughs> but so you have the song is playing and every different instrument is playing at the same time they're all telling their own individual stories the mixer at the board then chooses which of those stories we hear at which time and and brings them up at the moment we need them brings them down at the moment we don't need them, brings up several of them in unison when he wants them all to be together. Um, and it strikes me that that's one way of thinking about the way an author controls narrative. If you consider the action of a novel or of a story to be a thing that is happening that you are chronicling in some way, right? It's, it's from point A to point Z, from beginning of the end, uh, to beginning of the novel to end of the novel, You've got the action in your head as the author, presumably. Perhaps as you're writing it out, it becomes more apparent to you. But at some point, the full scope of the events of the novel, those that happen, quote unquote, on screen, and those that happen, quote unquote, off screen, are all in your head. And then it becomes part of your job to decide 
when am I raising the volume on this character and her particular part of the story? When am I raising the volume on this one? When am I lowering it and letting days or months or years go by without us ever, without the reader ever hearing about them? And then when am I raising the volume up again to bring us back into the story? Um, I think the difference between a professional sound engineer or those guys in Steely Dan and me uh, is that they're, they're a lot more certain about what they're doing when they're at that mixing board. I found particularly in this experience with this novel, which is the, you know, my first novel, um, I was much more uncertain about the kinds of decisions I would make than I am when I'm writing a narrative nonfiction piece or a reported story or the kind of opinion essay that I often write at Slate. And with those kinds of pieces, there's still knobs that you're using. There's still volume you're bringing up and bringing down. Mm. You're still making those kinds of decisions, but they're much more evident to me what those decisions should be. And in this case, I found myself frequently surprised by what would happen when I brought the volume up at a certain moment and what I would learn um, about the characters and about the story that I was making by making those kinds of decisions. Sometimes what I learned was that that decision was wrong. That, what, that I hadn't, in fact, needed to bring the volume up at that moment and that telling the story at that point was not useful. Sometimes I learned that, that I was hearing, you know, in the, in the background of, uh, of the, the character whose volume I brought up, I was hearing a little bit of someone else's story that made me realize, oh, the action of this section is now leading me toward the next person whose volume I'm going to bring up, the next moment in the story I'm going to be bringing the volume up on. Um, so there were pleasant surprises and unpleasant surprises, but I always had the sense <laughs> that there was this great narrative flow going on and a multitude of, of narrative voices, and that I had the ability, which was delightful as a writer, to bring any of them up at any time and bring any of them down at any time. But the story was always there humming along in the background. Mm -hmm. Can I ask a question? I, I think this is on my mind because I've just um, talked to Ingrid Horrocks um, who's written a non-fiction, like book-length non-fiction work. This availability of anyone's point of view at any time, these are your characters so you can make them think what they want to think versus some of your other work where you're representing true people you right. know and, and truth do you is there anything you can unpack about that experience that sure. particular well, part of the experience they're totally different generative experiences mm -hmm. but the similarity that they have is that you still have some control even as a nonfiction writer over what it is um over the, the channel that you can turn up and the channel that you can turn down. And you always have the ability, especially if you're a reporter, to go back and fill in the holes that your initial reporting has left. And so it's not as if you mm -hmm. are completely helpless and you know at the mercy <laughs> of whatever it was you turned up in your initial conversation with someone. There's always another person out there to talk to. There's always a, a way to go back to the person you talk to and get a little bit more you can't change what their story is but you can always get a little bit more color and detail or a different perspective and that strikes me as 
as fiction-like. Um, mm. you, you know, mm. when you're writing fiction, you have the ability to make all that stuff up, but you still have to be thinking, well, what is the angle that this thing I'm about to make up needs to come from? And that's not that different from looking at a piece of narrative nonfiction and saying, oh, there's a hole here that I need mm. to fill. Mm -mm -mm. And so I need to go out and hunt down the person or the particular part of the story that's going to fill that hole. Mm, mm. Yeah, I like that. Um, I've got the biggest question ever, and it, it seems silly to ask, but I really, really want to ask you, um, because I think you're an amazing reader of fiction and an amazing writer. Um, what is narrative for? Like, this, this, this crafting that, you know, the difference between plot and narrative, I guess, you know, I think I understand the difference between that, but what does narrative do to a piece of writing that just sort of letting it sit without a narrative would do does that make sense or can it maybe something can't even not have a narrative i don't know yeah i think that they're probably i think that there is well maybe there isn't fiction without narrative because i because i mean i think of narrative as essentially the the set of choices that an author makes about the organization and construction of uh, of the events of a novel. And those events can be enormous or small, but uh, there's always an intelligence behind the crafting of them. I guess you could argue that a work constructed randomly, for example, doesn't have an intentional narrative, but even that randomness creates a kind of ordering um, mm. that that a reader can decode, and and the randomness itself is a is a determinative choice made by an authorial brain. Mm. For me, narrative plot can surprise you, but narrative doesn't even if you weren't expecting it to do what it does right narrative mm -hmm. has a when done well narrative has a feeling of inevitability that tells you this is the way the story was always meant to be told and mm -hmm. i feel its inevitability as i move through it because of the hand of the author gently guiding me along not like pushing me where i don't want to go but always at my back sort of helpfully leading me as i make as i pick my way through this story um you know and in that way it's different from plot which is a thing that's happening to the characters a narrative is the is sort of the plot that's happening to us the reader oh i love that i really love that oh my gosh ah oh, you're so good at crystallizing things <laughs> That is so good. Um, can we talk a little bit? I don't, I don't, well, I'm just going to ask you the question. You can answer it as you see um, fit. Um, how is your new book structured? Like, how do you, yeah, like, I'll just ask that question. How is your new book structured? So the book's called Vintage Contemporaries, and mm -hmm. it's set in the 90s and the 2000s in New York City. And it's uh, mostly about one young woman a young in her early 20s at the beginning of the book in her mid 30s at the end of the book uh named emily who in her friendships with two very different women uh in the sort of greater 
sphere of the publishing and cultural world in New York at that time. One of them is a is a, a theater a theater director her age, who's uh, very vibrant and impulsive and a little bit of a pain in the ass, and the other is an older writer, a novelist, a, a single mother who hasn't had much success in her career, um, and who Emily helps sort of find her way to uh, to greater publication success. Um, the novel and the story initially was two stories. I started working on both of these stories when I turned 40, um, six years ago, when I, which coincided as it does for so many with a, um, a total panic attack, like a nervous breakdown about how <laughs> I had not uh, written any fiction in forever. Um, that, that, that I had spent my teens and twenties loving fiction and writing it all the time. I did an MFA in the United States um, which did a pretty good job of beating the, that desire out of me, but didn't completely rid me of it. Um, but then at some point, it sort of just fell away from me, in part because I was finding other ways to write that people were actually paying me for, that I really enjoyed, in part because I had other things in my life going on, and in part because I just sort of sort of lost, I felt like I lost the knack or the bug to make up stories in that way. It seemed so daunting to make up stories when as a journalist I had the ability to just go out into the world and stories would just like come to me mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. like locusts. Um, and, but you know, at 40, I just had this real like, boy, I, I feel bad about this and I want to be doing this. And I had a real itch to make something, to write something that felt different than what I'd been doing that uh, was invention. And so I started working on these sort of two different things and I didn't know what either of them were or what I could do with them. And one was set in the early nineties in, in New York and one was set in the mid two thousands in New York. Um, the one set in the mid two thousands was somewhat autobiographical in that it was about a young couple with a new baby. And, and that is when we were a young couple with a new baby in New York. Um, the, the nine, the early nineties piece was not, you know, I, I, in the early 90s, I was a teenager in high school. I didn't live in New York. I lived in Wisconsin. I, I liked the cultural spirit of that age in New York City. It was a really fascinating mm -hmm. time. Um, you know, the peak of the AIDS crisis, which was doing an insane amount of damage to the culture of the city, yet also a time of great musical and artistic and literary ferment in the city. Um, and so I was sort of writing these two things simultaneously. They were like two trains very, very slowly moving down, down the track, very slowly moving because I would write for, I would get a couple of weeks of good writing in always at night, always, you know, starting at like 1030 at night or whatever. And then it would fall away because I would have some other project that was taking up my nights. And then four months later, I would be like, ah, oh, fuck. I'm working on this thing and I'd go back to it and I work on it a little bit more. Um, and I had these two things forever and they both had women as the main characters. They seemed to me to be different women because, um, they just seemed to be concerned about different things and they were responding to, to the things that were happening to them in very different ways 
and making very different kinds of decisions. And at some point, maybe after two or three years of working on these two different things, set 15 years apart, um, I thought to myself, what happens if I start, what happens if I decide they're the same person? And the thing that's different is just that 15 years have gone by. Um, because, you know, I thought about myself at age 20 versus myself at age 35, and they do often seem like entirely different people with recognizable similarities between them. But if they met them on the street, I'd, if they met each other on the street, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't even like each other very much. Mm -hmm. um, and that I didn't know what that would do or whether that would be a worthwhile exercise, but it seemed like a good thing to try because A, it seemed fun. And B, it seemed like a way to start thinking about these two different things as one thing, as a bigger project that could then, and then I could start having the two different sections speak to each other in ways that they hadn't been up till that point. And, uh, and it worked, basically, I think. I think it worked. I mean, there were, I, there were some sort of very concrete changes I had to make about boring shit like where, you know, one character was from Connecticut and one character was not. Um, but whatever, that shit doesn't matter. It seemed to me that I could make a reasonable case for the person in 1991 turning into the person in the mid-2000s. And then writing it became a kind of fun puzzle about, well, how did that happen? How did the person in 1991 turn into the person in 2004, 2005? And how can I tell that story without really telling much about the intervening years, without putting us, at, without bringing the knob up on those intervening years at all? Um, and so then I had that sort of parallel structure going for a couple of more years. Um, and I, and it started to seem maybe a little more like a novel, albeit a novel that I still only had like 50 pages of because I was still only writing for a week at a time at 1030 at night and then putting it away for months and months and months. Uh, and then at the beginning of this year, I set, or not, sorry, not this year, at the beginning of two of 2020, I once again gave myself a little midlife crisis and I, um, and I said, look, this this is the year to figure out whether this is the thing you're actually doing or not doing. And I set myself a bunch of artificial, you know, word goals for each and every single day. Um, I put aside all the other stuff that I was doing. There was a pandemic. So all of a sudden I never went out. Um, and my kids were old enough that I no longer had to really worry about them that much in the evening. They were just doing their own stuff. And, um, and then also the other thing that happened, uh, was that I read your book, uh, nothing to see, which had a structure, which similarly jumped years the way that my book was meant to be doing. Um, but which led me to feel like what I really wanted was to jump way ahead mm. and then to jump back to a period a little bit later than the 1991 that I've been writing about awesome. and then jump and then leapfrog ahead up to a period a little bit later than the future part. And I wanted them to be really discrete sections. 
And so what I ended up with was not unlike your book, which has very discrete sections set in very specific mm. years, but with a slightly different ordering. If your book is like A, B, C, D, E, taking us mm -hmm. directly, you know, linearly across time, mine was A, C, B, D. It was 1991, awesome. then 2005, then 1993, then 2007. So you have these two different stories going, but they each interrupt each other. They're sort of nested inside each other in a way. And each time you go to a new section, you have a whole new set of mysteries that me as a writer, I'm interested in, in solving, and you as a reader are interested in learning the answers to. When you get to 2005, mm -hmm. you want to know how did 1991 Emily turn into 2005 Emily. But you're also setting up a bunch of things uh, uh, that about the mystery of the intervening years that then when you go back to 1993, give you a bunch more gifts as a reader of, oh, now I get to find out how this happened. Now I get to find out what she was talking about this. Now I get to find out how she met this character who I know appears in her future. And then going forward to 2007 allows you to resolve everything in a way that I thought felt satisfying. And it gives you the benefit of, of the sweep of this person's entire life but it, it allowed me to do it in a specific focused way and allowed me to not do like six, six years later mm -hmm. after a long mm -hmm. period of working, blah, 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 blah. Like mm -hmm. I didn't want to tell all those stories. I wanted the characters to think and talk about them the way we think and talk about our pasts uh, filtered through our own prejudices and and the mistakes in our memory and our, the grudges that we hold from them. But I, but I wanted that to come from the characters, not from, some, not from me, the narrator, sort of taking you by the hand and leading you through it. So that's the structure that I ended up using was um, this, uh, you know, using the mixing board analogy, it was I turned up channel one um, and then uh, while the story went on along, there's this big gap where you don't hear anything. And then I turned up channel three um, and then I rewound the tape and then I turned up channel two and then I fast forwarded the tape and I turned up channel four. And that's the way it's delivered in these big sort of 75 page chunks, four of them right in a row. Oh my gosh. I love it. <laughs> I um, I just, yeah, I just think um, I was thinking when you were talking, I, because I, I'm not, I don't know what's wrong with me. I just, I think I'm not a very good writer, but I like that idea of chapters blew my mind when I was writing that. Cause I remember, I remember actually calling Carl or talking to Carl Shuka and just saying, you don't have to tell everything. And he was <laughs> like, no, Pip. Cause if you think about like new animals for me is just in 24 hours right. and every single, you're with them. It's virtually like that old TV show 24. Like you're with them, you're with somebody for every hour of the day. And like when I was writing the other one, I was just like, oh my God, you can miss things out. You know, and I think um, the book where I noticed that first was um, Sally Rooney's book, um, Normal People. Like I was like, oh yeah, oh my gosh. And do you think like a lot of this, I often wonder if structure is about um, rev 
um, what do you call it? It's like revelation and holding back, if you know what I mean. Like it's about showing and not showing. Yeah, I well, narrative is as much about yeah. the stuff that you decide not to to show as it is about what you decide to show. And um, and then it's also about the way you deal with that material uh, as a writer and the way your characters mm. deal with it. Um, you know, one thing that I found really invigorating about your book that I tried to carry into this book was the way that um, when we leap forward in time, you just don't signpost it very much. You don't, you don't give a lot of, um, here's what these characters have been doing for this period of time. And, and you don't give that right at the beginning, which is one easy way to do it as a writer. If you know, here's what's been going on in the intervening 10 years, but you don't even really have them talk that much about the intervening time. And so you don't even reveal that much of it through dialogue or through action. You're content to leave a lot of it quite blank. Um, and I, I liked that a lot and thought, oh, you're making a specific choice to leave all that space blank. And, you're, and then the very few details that you do give have a tremendous amount of power in the context of the narrative because you've got a, you have a reader who is hungry for those kinds of details and who is not getting them. Um, but who then, when they're delivered a little bit, are going to assign it a greater weight uh, in their than than a greater weight, perhaps than even the character herself assigns mm -hmm. it. Um, and mm -hmm. you can then use that to your to your to the reader's benefit if you believe that actually this thing is super important and you want to call their attention to it, or you can use it to misguide the reader if you if you want them to make a mistake in reading or uh, or be misled briefly you can use it uh, to like lay these little emotional bombs that then explode <laughs> later on um, I just found that very useful and and now I've gotten so I sold this novel in January and um, I've gotten edit notes back from my editors a very smart editor a woman named Sarah at um, HarperCollins in the United States. Awesome. And her notes are the exact notes that I think I would give on this book if I was editing it. And I'm trying to figure out how much to listen to them and how much to ignore them because a lot of them are often about wanting to know more about the intervening years and wanting to find ways to seed those details into the narrative of the future of, you know, of the two mm. thousands sections. Mm. And I think those are real readers goals, right? Those are what readers want. And now I have to figure out when is it the right choice to give the reader what they want? And when is it a better choice to deny them that? Um, mm. And I don't know the answer to that yet. And that's what I'm trying to figure out in this revision as I'm starting to launch into it. I really, this is such an, this is one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you um, now is that like, first of all, you're trying to hold this whole thing in your mind. And I'm interested in how we do that. Like how, like you're talking 
like like 15 nearly is it nearly 20 years you know of time yeah. so you know that kind of thing you're talking multiple characters with multiple relationships then you're also at the same time talking about a you know like what is it a you know sort of almost 200,000 words as well you're trying to th- keep that in mind should we stop shall I ask you that first before I ask you the next part of this question how do you manage to keep all that in mind and I guess the second part of my question is around now the book almost becomes this collaboration which is kind of exciting because it other people read it and the book's written again and other people's readings of it but I just wonder first of all I guess how do you how do you hold everything in your brain I there? find it maybe you find it easy no I find it very <laughs> difficult verging on impossible mm. and in fact I find mm. that when I one reason it took so long to not to write the book but like to really get the engine revving um, is that I find it all falls out of my head um, mm, if I'm mm, away mm, from mm, it mm. for more than a couple of weeks. And it just gets replaced by all the other stuff in my life and, you know, in my life and also in my in my writing work that is not this mm, thing. Mm. And, um, and so I, I think it's not an accident that I basically wrote 50 pages of this book in five years and then essentially forced myself to never step away from it and was able to write the whole rest of the book over the course of a year. It was, it had, a lot of it had been in there percolating and I had made a lot of notes and I had a lot of ideas, but until I was like sunk into the book and didn't give myself the chance to get out of it, I couldn't keep it all in my head in a way mm, that was mm. useful at all. And now that I find, now I find, you know, I did the last rewrite on this thing in December and it's March now as we're speaking and it's, whew, it's I mean, it's gone like birds mm, mm. flown out of a tree and I'm not going, you know, I know, I remember the structure. I obviously remember the characters and I know most things that happen, but like the actual feeling of being inside the book is totally gone. And without having that feeling, I don't th- know that I'm necessarily capable of doing the rewrite. And so in order to do this rewrite, I'm going to need to like take a couple of weeks off and of my actual job and use my vacation time and set aside a big chunk of time and just not do anything else for a while. And it's very frustrating as a writer um, to feel like I don't have a way of just like casually making a creative work. I have to like be an intense pain in the ass about it and like, you know, be the, be like, don't bother me kids. I'm writing. And, you know, in the great Jenny Ophel line, wishing I had a Vera to like bring me my tea. Um, but like, I, I just apparently, I don't know, maybe when I was 25, I could have, maybe I had that kind of like mental capacity, but at 46, I don't, it's like, unless I am in it all the way, I don't have the ability to keep everything in your head in a way that you need to, to be able to think about these larger questions of structure and what they're doing. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, I basically have told my editor, I mean, in this way, the, the, the endless amount of time between now and when the book is actually coming out is a great benefit because we don't need to close the book until next January, 
which is great because I don't think I'm going to actually be able to have the weeks I need to do this work until the summer, the summer mm-hmm. here in the United States, which is, you know, June or July. And, mm-hmm. um, and you know, if with this book was on any kind of accelerated schedule, the three months between when she gives me the edits and when I can actually sit down and do them would be intolerable. But I just don't know. I haven't yet figured out a way that I can do it in a different way. And I find that very frustrating because I can do journalism in that different way. Um, and I, you know, I can do the, the, the writing that I do for my job in that different way. I can be working on a couple of different things at once. And maybe if it's a big story, I'll take a couple of days to just really focus on that. But I don't need like weeks. Hmm. And, and, uh, and I don't, and I can like, you know, take an hour off and drive my kid somewhere or something. Uh, I don't be, have to become like a hermit, but I don't, I don't have that yet. I don't know how to do that yet with this kind of work and that I find that frustrating. What about you? Can you uh, like write oh. and, while also doing a bunch of other stuff or do you have to like sink into it? I, um, I said the most fucking stupid thing of my life a few years ago. Um, like when I wrote new animals, I was just writing 15 minutes a day. Like all I had was like. 8am till 8.15 and that was the only time I had so and I think that this what I really relate to what you're saying is I need to touch the work every day Mm -hmm. like whatever that looks like whether it's like putting it up on the screen and changing the font or you know like if I'm not doing that then my subconscious has got nothing to work on but every every book since I've never been able to replicate that 15 minutes a day like it's needed it's needed exactly like what you're saying. It's needed sinking in, bedding in time. Like, and also it's, I feel really bad because I am also, I just get absolutely, um, like even when I'm with other people, I'm thinking about the book, you know what I mean? Like I'm supposed to be in a family or in a conversation and I'm thinking, you know, like it's like this other parallel world kind of going on, which yeah, I, um, Oh man, you've expressed it really well because, yeah, I think, I used to think, like, do you think that you hold other people's work in your brain as a whole? You know what I mean? Like, if you think about other books, like, I wonder if, I don't feel like I can hold those either. Not books, no. Oh, well, there are one or two books that I've read so many times that essentially they're part of my DNA. Um, But I but I mean, I do have the experience of holding other people's work in my head for long periods of time as an editor. And often that work is quite yeah. long, you know, a five oh, or 6,000 yeah, yeah. word story. And if, when you work on that enough, you know, you essentially have as good of a sense of its structure and hopefully the work that each of the sentences is doing as the writer mm-hmm. does. Um, and I, so I, have the, I know that I have the ability to do that. I've never edited a book when I give notes on friends books, I know that I I'll read the book and I have got to write that email in a day or two Mm. or else it's Mm. like lost. Mm. Um, And as a critic, I'm basically the same way. If I'm reading a book to write on it, um, I can't dip in, disappear, dip back in and then return to the book two weeks later and hope that I can like successfully write a piece on it i need to write pretty fast otherwise the stuff's the stuff that makes for a good review or a good piece of criticism um which is the 
the sparks that fly when you bounce different things from the book off each other um mm. that stuff those connections disappear the way you know you always hear that as you're every day after age 30 or whatever like 200 neural connections don't just decay it. Don't tell me. it's like that's what's happening with my idea of these books it's like, it's not that i don't necessarily remember what happens in the book but it's the imaginative connections between yeah. the things that disappear and that's that's kind of narrative in a way too right those are the things Mm-mm. when you're a fiction writer crafting narrative those are the that's what you're trying to make you're trying to create those sparky connections between things um and that's the stuff that that crumbles like if that architecture falls apart if i'm away from it for too long uh Mm. as a you know as the writer or as the observer Mm. i was thinking i was also thinking with that with things that we're writing ourselves we've got all the channels in mind if you know what i mean like if we go back to that mixtape idea all those tracks do you know what i mean like to a certain extent yes it's not that's what being in the book feels like to me that's you know it's it's when I know all the different tools I have at my disposal as a writer or as, or as a, or an editor or as a reviser working on my own thing, when I have like an intimate and easy sense of what it is I have at hand, even if I don't know what's going to happen when it, when I turn it up, I know mm. what I have. That's what goes away. Um, and mm. so, and it's that that creates those connections. It's turning up two things at once and watching what happens when they play in unison or in harmony. Um, that's what goes away. And instead I end up, you know, it's like, you know, I, I'm back at the mixing board, but we recorded this thing two months ago and I can't even remember which channel the trombones are on anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I really relate to that. I really relate to that. Um, one thing like these sparks that you're talking about and you're talk with I think when I think we often talk about readers and I'm wondering what keeps someone reading this is a question that I often ask because I often I often wonder if narrative is really just about keeping people reading the next sentence I don't know that seems very cynical but but maybe it isn't I don't know what do you think keeps people reading um I I know what keeps me reading Mm. um and that is thus far been the only real lens i've ever been able to apply to my own work or to other people other people's works as a critic and i don't it's not usually narrative um Mm. sometimes narrative choices create mystery and anticipation and desire and that helps push push me through a book um Sometimes it's pure plot. It's just the mm-hmm. desire to know the answers to the questions that the plot has raised or just the literal next thing that's going to happen next. Um, sometimes it's delight. So I had a fun um, interview earlier this week um, you know, for my job at Slate with uh, Mike Lee, the director, the <gasps> film director, oh, who awesome. I love so much uh so secrets and lies his movie from 1996 is coming out on a criterion dvd the criterion collection is issuing it um and so i got to interview him about this movie that i've loved forever and i asked him about these scenes you know i hadn't watched the movie since 1996 when it came out i rewatched it last week i'd completely forgotten that there are these scenes through the whole first half of the movie 
the action of the movie where we're meeting the family and the you know the young woman who's just finding her adoptive mother and everything is interspersed with these little vignettes from um, Timothy Spall's character's work. He's a photographer, and we get these little moments of just him shooting portraits of people. And it's nice because we hear him behind the camera and we get a sense of that he's a nice guy and that he's good at his job. But really, it's just these interesting characters who we see for 10 seconds and they do something interesting and Timothy Spall makes them smile and then the camera flashes and that's it. And we go on to the next thing. And I asked him why he had included those moments. And he said, oh, that's easy there. I mean, they're treats. They're treats for the audience. You need to have treats in whatever you're making especially this is kind of a turgid story if you look at it um and so i wanted to make sure that there were treats you know and 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 treats really get me through a book and they can take all sorts of different forms that are not always whimsical or funny but um uh, the knowledge that i'm going to be rewarded in the next couple of pages by a little flourish of language or by a, a a character surprise or by a good joke like any of those things really help me through a novel because they keep they keep sort of you know buoying you the way that when a when, you know when a soap bubble is drifting to the ground a kid will like wave at it to get it to fly back up in the air uh treats do that for you in a book and so i now like thinking of uh you know just making sure that there are treats of some kind you know in the work and it's notable i think that his movie has the ability once you're about halfway through and the thing that is the the movie is about has happened and you understand that it's happened now you know brenda blethen and marianne jean baptiste have met each other and 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 now you've got a plot pushing you he doesn't need those specific kinds of treats anymore and there's other treats that the movie offers but then for the second half of the movie, there, it's plot pushing you through mm. and a desire to see what's going to happen to these characters. Um, and thinking like very concretely and consciously about uh, the things that you give your reader and what it is that are helping them, helping propel them forward, I think is a really useful exercise. And often you're, you might be wrong about it, but thinking in that way, I think, is fun. It's a fun way to approach a work. Um, and I don't think you're wrong in general that it's important to consider. And I don't know that the only purpose of narrative is to keep a reader reading, but certainly uh, a grand purpose of a book, among its many other grand purposes, is to make someone want to continue reading it. I was I read earlier this year um, Hermione Lee's big biography of Tom Stoppard, um, where it, about a half dozen times over the course of his life, as Hermione Lee tells it, someone would ask him like, "Well, what is you know what is what is a playwright's job? What is the purpose of drama?" And he, his answer was always, "It is to make sure that the audience's butts stay in their seats until." <laughs> the end of the play when they clap that is your that is your number one job and i don't know that i agree that that's your number one job but it can't not be your job mm -hmm. yeah oh my god i love that so much i was thinking can i 
But sometimes when we talk about these things, they sound like, um, you know, there's a formula. But I was wondering, I always wonder if I'm selfish like this, but I really do need to keep myself reading in the first instance. Mm -hmm. Do you think, like, sometimes I'm writing, you know, where I want to go, where I want the book to go. Do you think a lot of it is around knowing yourself as a reader do you know what I mean? Like sort of, I, I always feel, almost feel like it's sort of entertaining yourself yeah. while well, you're writing. I don't know. Well, that's, um, when you write a book over <laughs> six years, <laughs> um, even with long <laughs> gaps in it, you really have to keep entertaining yourself. I mean, it for a long time, uh, I wasn't giving myself reasons to want to come back to this thing. Mm. Mm. Um, and this is, I mean, this is, this can be a question of narrative. It's also a question of tone sometimes. And, mm -hmm. and what is mm -hmm. the tone and the, the, the emotional level that you want a book to be operating at. At some point with this book, something that really helped was I just made a very conscious decision that even when this book was dealing with difficult stuff, I wanted its tone and spirit to be as light as possible mm -hmm. all the mm -hmm. time. And the, there's a very specific book that I was modeling it after in that way, which is um, a Laurie Colwin novel. Uh, called Happy All the Time. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Do you know Laurie Colwin at all? Has she, does she have yeah, any profile yeah. in New Zealand? Yeah. Um, uh, it's a book that is mostly about two young couples falling in love and then being happy together. Um, and some bad things happen to them along the way, but it never loses this sort of like champagne fizz that mm. uh, that really keeps you afloat through the book. And that's not the right tone for every book or even for most books. But I found it very useful as a writer to have that tone in mind because it meant that even when I was writing difficult sections, difficult because the material was difficult, or difficult because I just truly didn't know what to do. Um, I found that knowing that I could work in that register helped get me back to the computer mm. and willing to do the next thing that I had to do. Um, because I knew that whatever I was doing, it wouldn't be a drag. And if I ever managed to write another novel, I don't know that it's going to be in this particular register and I am going to have to find something else that's going to get me back to the computer for the stuff that might be a drag. Um, but it was so useful for this when, you know, it took so long and it was so interrupted and I was so in the dark for a lot of it over wh whether it even was anything or whether I could do this thing I was trying to do. Um, that, that writing it for myself in the most pure way, which is to say writing it, in a way that would make me interested to come back the next day to keep writing it was really valuable. Mm, yeah, I love that. I love that. And it feels like a good place to finish. 
I think I think we I think I've asked you everything I have to ask you. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to say about narrative or plot? Um, <laughs> there's one other thing which I thought was interesting. Awesome. It is interesting to me that the book that you wrote in 15 minutes every morning narratively is the book that is structured the way it is. That's structured as one 24-hour chunk of time in which as a writer, your primary job most of those 15-minute chunks was to just figure out what's the next thing that happens. Mm. Mm. Um, And... I wonder if they go hand in hand in some way. If that, if that's a narrative structure that lends itself to that particular writing schedule, if that particular writing schedule is particularly suited toward producing that kind of narrative structure. I am absolutely sure because I think, um, I don't know, like I was very interested in the time you have um, changing the structure of your book. Like um, Tim Corbelis wrote a book called RHI and we talked a lot about how that was a book structured on interruption and structured on not knowing when the next time he'd be able to write would be. And I think that for sure... Um, you know like I applied for funding to try and get time to write a book and I couldn't get it and I thought well fuck it I'm just going to write it in 15 minute things and like it really is it's the simplest thing like because it's like okay so they just had lunch what are they going to do after lunch you know what I mean and like it it was and I didn't have to sort of warm up which was really nice you know like because I didn't have time to warm up it was just like sit down write the next thing you know and yeah I I'm really interested in the ways books are written um how that affects um the book that's written I feel like Alif Batcherman wrote a book about the Russians and time they had for writing maybe not anyway but yeah I think I think you're dead right I think that the way that we write often does change the structure of the book and it's so funny to think of if that 15 minutes had been an hour, yeah, how does that yeah. change the structure? You know, because I think of a book like, uh, you know, like Jenny Ophel, Department of Speculation, yeah. which is yeah, which yeah. she wrote basically in half hour to one hour chunks that she had. Yeah. And she and each of and and that led her to a fragmentary structure. She had enough time each time she sat down to write to knock out five good paragraphs um, and and then also to hone them and get them sort of sharp but then the next time she came to the book whenever that was a couple days later or a couple hours later she she was on to the next thing and then she had Mm -hmm. all those little different fragments and you know she put them up on her bulletin board and then eventually arranged them into a novel but like that's a novel of half hour to one hour chunks interspersed randomly across your life the new animals is a novel of 15 minute sections every day maybe this is a novel of five years of, of occasional writing and then a year of being a dick i don't know <laughs> but you it should, definitely affects your it. memoir the, could be called the structure the way you write it, as you say really affects the structure of the book you're writing because you're mm. because your brain your brain is tr- is struggling to do this foolish and basically impossible thing and then you cause all these other problems for it and your brain is just like well fuck here we go i guess this is how we do it 
because I also wonder the other thing I wonder is if a book written at 10.30 at night is different from a book written at 5am in the morning like I wonder if the brain is in a different space you know what I mean like if or, or a book that has to be that's the thing that I found interesting about Tim's book is that there wasn't a set time it was kind of like just wherever you know like if the kids were asleep you know and like so it reads very interestingly because there's yeah, this idea of almost, it almost comes to these conclusions because it's like, who knows when next, you know, which I think will be interesting in your book as well, you know, like that idea of who knows when next, you know, like who knows when the next time will be. But yeah, oh my God, I can't wait to read your book. I wish I could time travel, not unlike you could uh, just the leap forward two years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> leap forward, push that mixing um, channel up and uh, just read it. And yeah, I, I just can't wait. Thank you so much, Dan, again. This has been really helpful Thanks. and just wonderful. This has been Thanks, super fun. Yay. Okay, now this exercise takes a bit of um, explaining, but I'm going to give it a go anyway. These exercises are getting more and more complex the longer I'm alive. So what I was thinking was you could take a narrative you know well. I was thinking it could be maybe a TV commercial or a fairy tale or, yeah, maybe even a song. Um, and it's something relatively simple. Um, now what I thought is that you could write that narrative in three minutes. So just set the timer for three minutes and write the story. And then what I thought you could do is um, try this again but follow... A different character so um, perhaps I was thinking of Snow White um, this very uh, I think this thing's been done before but maybe instead of following um, Snow White's journey you follow the grandmother's journey during the morning and I thought you could do this a couple of times sort of following different people's journeys and writing them down and then I thought what you could do is literally have a go at what we talked about um, in the podcast about the mixing desk kind of theory sort of turning up and down different people's version of the story or different people's experience of the story um, I thought you could if you wanted to literally cut up the sentences um, and maybe highlight them in different colors and then put together the story that way and see what happens there you go <laughs> um, yeah I, I don't know I, I tried it and it was interesting and um, I also thought while I was trying it that you could obviously use something that you've written maybe there's a scene or a short story and um, yeah you could have a think about what's happening in other rooms while um, you're telling the story in this room so yeah hope that is fun um, yeah thanks heaps for listening <laughs> <laughs>